Well, good evening, everybody. Please feel free to wave at me if you can't hear me, or you can't hear me. Oh, that's good. That'll help. But wave if after that's on if you can't hear me. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so uh, I said to Anna, I said, oh, I appreciated how she started the talk last night by asking you about the inquiry. And I thought I would do something a little bit similar, which is ask you, what is keeping you from being present right now? Right? If anything. And I'm not, I'm not actually looking for an answer but I'm looking for us to see how the inquiries can begin to live as part of our practice and our life because there was a lot of positive feedback, maybe not from everybody, but about the inquiry, about uh, when, especially the second question. Tell me a way you experience being present right now. So even that, notice that. Notice what it's like to be present right now and then see what happens or what gets in the way of that. What gets in the way of that during the talk or what gets in the way of that when I'm not talking or etc. And let's just keep those questions alive. You don't have to think out the answers but feel into the truth of are you present or are you not present and why not if you're not present? <clears throat> so, um, and that's just a little pre-talk something. Here, now I'll go to the talk. Um, and I'd like to begin the talk with a, a Buddhist quote that I like very much. One of, one of my favorite Buddhist teaching quotes it's from the Lankavatara Sutra. The Buddha said, Things, things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. And if I was totally enlightened, I'd just stop the talk there. Because that really sums up a lot. That's a beautiful description of reality. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. And maybe, maybe in your um, worldly studies of reality, you've discovered this at times. Like, oh, you, you see, oh, things aren't what we think, or things aren't exactly what we believe, or things aren't exactly how we're holding them, but they're not totally different either. In other words, there's a paradoxical truth in this phrase from the Buddha when he was pointing at reality. And that paradoxical um, uh, that encouragement 
to begin to recognize the paradox of reality itself is part of the Buddhist teaching. Because we have a lot of ideas about how things are, and then one of the things that will happen with practice is we see, oh, it's not exactly like I thought. It's not exactly what I believed. It's not what I was told. It's not far away from that. It's not not that, but it's not just that. And so it starts to bring the paradoxical quality to the foreground. And a simple way I think about this and have thought about it as part of practice as long as I've been practicing, like one way I understand um, uh, the Satipatthana teaching and practice of, of mindfulness and bodyfulness and heartfulness is that we're not taking anything for granted. Right? Like we're working with the most ordinary reality, like me. You know, I'm working with this. This is not extraordinary in a certain way. But I'm not taking for granted that I know what this is, even though, of course, it's me. I know this. I've been with this me for quite a while now, and it's still me, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, um, it's not just about me. It's also about you. Meaning, oh, I know you, and I don't know you at the same time. Or I have my ideas about you, or my beliefs about you, or my experience with you, or my history with you, or whatever it might be. But that doesn't uh, concretize you. You're not woven in a fixated kind of reality that is Eugene's idea of who you are. So it's, it's not just an internal, what we were talking about a little bit is internal understanding, but also an external understanding. <clears throat> and I wanted to bring that in because we're practicing the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the teachings of awareness, you know, talked about in the terms of the four foundations of awareness or mindfulness or bodyfulness or heartfulness. And they're very simple teachings. This is not rocket science teaching of the practice. It's very simple, right? Pay attention here. I'm going to give you the pay attention to what's here. Be aware of what's here in any moment. Like that's not so exotic. I'm, I like exotic. I could go for exotic, but that's not. That's very simple, very direct, and very, very difficult to stay present, to stay aware, to stay awake, moment by moment by moment, and recognize or know what's here, what's happening not just in a conceptual way, because I want to be careful, but in the experiential aliveness of what's here moment by moment by moment in an ongoing way. And my part of my understanding of the Satipatthana Sutta, the teachings of awareness, is that it's a guide to experiential reality. 
It's a guide to coming into relationship with experiential reality and then seeing how that impacts us because it impacted the Buddha. And he said, oh, if you want to discover what I discovered, here's the way I know how to discover it. Practice the four foundations of mindfulness. And so, and I was bringing in the inner and outer because uh, somewhere in the last few days we've been talking about the fact that all the teachings on uh, the mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of the Vedana, which is feeling tone, or mindfulness of the mind or mindfulness of the Dharma is all to be done um, uh, both in terms of interior mindfulness and external mind, exterior mindfulness, inner and outer, but internal, external. And the Buddha is very clear. It's not all just, oh, you just sit there and you never are mindful, never aware of what's outside. No, you may start here, like with the breath, but then you, then you start to be aware, oh, you're breathing. And you can actually see people breathing, or you can see the nuances of breath, of the expansion and contraction of, a, of the torso when somebody else is breathing. Or you can see them open their mouth and take a breath. Or you can start to recognize, oh, what's here is also there. And it's not just a good idea or very, you know, California spiritual idea. It's actually happening, right, here and here, right? And even, you know, you can start to know, oh, people are having feelings. You know, if you say the wrong thing to somebody, you'll know very quickly they're having some feelings about it or thoughts about it. And so the living reality that we're starting to pay attention to is not just living in one place. And so we're, we're being aware, we're being mindful, bodyful, heartful, internally and externally at the same time. And, and again, in the instructions, the way the Buddha says it, one is aware internally, then he says one is aware externally, and then he says one is aware both internally and externally. And the kind of guidelines that I like to encourage for the practice of the Satipatthana um, is don't work at it. Okay, is that an okay instruction? Don't work at it. No sweating. I mean, you, you can. You can work if you really want, but that's not my instruction these days. My instruction is, oh, play with it. Play with it. Because this is a practice about discovering reality that's sitting here, both internally and externally. Let's get interested or curious about what this is, and then see what happens as we play or experiment or do it in ways we don't know exactly what we're doing even, but we see what we discover as we stay present, as we stay aware of the internal and the external in, in any moment. And I'm, I'm a little stressing the internal and external because we are doing inquiry on this retreat, which is which is um, mindfulness retreat dystonic. That's good. All right? 
right? It's, it's not what we usually do. You know, I've been on a zillion meditation retreats. We didn't do inquiry. We're doing everything to just get... And there's a certain beauty in that practice that I totally love. Totally love. I'm happy to do that anytime. But I'm also happy to do other parts of life as practice because I'm not just going to live on retreat for the rest of my life. That's not where my interest is. And even if you're a monastic, that's not what you're doing. You know, and especially in the Ajahn Chah lineage, that wasn't what was encouraged at all. What was encouraged was to be mindful every moment of your day, to be aware and awake every moment and see what that is. And for me, personally, that takes practice. And so I want to practice when I'm talking to you. I want to practice right now while I'm talking. I want to practice when I'm listening to people. I don't even know want. It's just, oh, that's, that's what brings more isness here, hereness here, awareness here, clear knowing and clear not knowing. Because I'm not trying to know. I'm trying to see what happens as I stay aware and awake moment by moment by moment. And so we're giving you this simple but difficult practice called the Satipatthana Sutta, from the Satipatthana Sutta. And, um, and please see what it's like to practice right now while you're listening. And, and play with it. Be curious about it. Wonder, oh yeah, where does consciousness go? How can I let consciousness um, uh, uh, saturate body, heart, mind right now? And what, is in, and what is known by body, heart, and mind? Like me. <laughs> or, you know, whatever you're looking at, right, is part of the awareness that's happening in your seat. Here's one thing, I, and I, you're just going to get a bunch of different things from me today because it's my mood, but I hope it helps a little. Um, so one of the things, maybe Anna said it, I'm not sure, um, um, that people get pretty quick. Like, if you don't do anything and you just start to be aware of hearing, right? It just happens. Everybody got that? Right? The hearing happens. And you see that after the sound is heard, then there's a conceptualization of the sound, an idea about it, a recognition. All those things happen very quickly. But first there's just, you know, or, or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, and what ha- what, what's nice about going to the hearing is that it allows people to relax. Right? You don't have to do anything to hear, for the most part, especially if my mic is loud enough. Right? And you can hear me, and, and then it all happens. So it's the same principle with seeing. Don't do anything to see, and let the sights come to you like the sounds come to you. And that may give you a little more relaxation or comfort or present-centeredness in the seeing as practice. Because you're not, you don't have to go out to see me, 
I mean, I don't, I'm not good. I'm just sitting right here. I can see all of you. And you look good. It's nice to see you. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to see you. And, and, it's, and so there's all kinds of associations happen, ideas and names and memories and beliefs. and that. But the most fundamental piece is just seeing is happening. And to start to recognize seeing, and it's so much the world we live in that we don't recognize it. We believe it. We think, oh yeah, there's, you're out there. We don't see that actually you're all right in my mind. <laughs> this is not where I expected to go, but let's go for a second, right? You know, I mean, I know you're over there. I'm not totally deluded, but, but really, if I look right here, it's all in my awareness, which is a totally weird and cool thing, as far as I can tell. So um, let me see if I can get back on the talk. <laughs> and, and really, the reason why I'm pointing at the hearing and the seeing is because at a certain point, especially like the hearing, it's easy, but maybe even now with the seeing, you might notice or become aware that you don't have to do the seeing. If you have your eyes open, it just happens. If, you, if your ears are okay, you know, and you ha- or you have your hearing aids if you need them, which I use them, so they're great. You know, the hearing just happens. You don't do it. You want to be aware of it because it's already happening like that. It's, it's so much our world. And so one of the things that happens with the Satipatthana Sutta and the teachings of being mindful is that it's very useful, very helpful, and has a little quality of being undoable. And that's confusing for people. That's paradoxical for us. Because we came here to, I'm going to practice mindfulness. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what the Buddha taught. And then everything will happen, and I'll get awakened, you know. Good luck, you know. Uh, You can do it, but you also can't do it. And so I'm pointing at paradox in practice. They're both true. You can do it, but not all the way. At some point, you can't do it. And we want to be open to discovering reality as it is, even if it's different than we're used to or we think or we believe or we understand. Let's see, let's see. I mean, don't throw away your beliefs or don't get rid of them or don't believe me. Don't, don't do that. That would be really dangerous. But see for yourself if you keep the door open. I had a really great Buddhist teacher when I was really um, studying samadhi Deep, deep concentration states, and it was fun. I had a great time. And he said, and he would, and I was doing a certain level of samadhi that you go into these various levels of absorption, and they're all they're very cool states of consciousness. And he said, well, just would if you think you're in this state, then put one of those little post-it notes on it. Just put a post-it note and keep practicing with the post-it note on it. He said, then if you discover, oh, it's a different state, just take the post-it note off and put a new one on, you know, that has the right state. In other words, 
you're playing with practice and it's not a rigid thing because you're playing with reality and reality is not a rigid thing. Reality, look at it, it's totally alive. It's totally amazing. It's totally mysterious on a certain level. So the other piece I thought I would add in right here is that a true, is a quote I have, I don't know from who. Uh, I, I, th- I think it's from Hamid Ali, but I don't, I don't know if that's true. I, don't have, I didn't have a name, but a true practice, like the Satipatthana, like the practice of mindfulness or awareness, a true practice is one that self-destructs from time to time. Now that's a great understanding of practice because that gives us room to discover and experiment and learn and then mistakes aren't a problem. They're what we learn from. If the whole thing goes down the drain, we'll, we'll learn something and I can testify to that because I've definitely had my whole practice go down the drain sometimes. <clears throat> And it's important to know that we're both doing it and we can't do it because if we really did it, our ego would claim it for itself because that's the nature of the conventional sense of self or the ego self. It thinks it's doing everything. Have you noticed that? Anybody or is that just me? (laughs) Really, we think we're doing it all, you know. And really, I'm amazed at how little we're actually doing. So the reason why it's good to see that we're not doing it all, because if we, if the ordinary sense of self, if the ego sense of self were doing it, we wouldn't ever get liberated. We wouldn't ever find freedom. Because... If we are doing it, why would we get liberated from ourselves? Because that's part of what the Buddha pointed at when he pointed at freedom. Freedom from the habitual, usual, historical identity, which we all have some of, right? We all have it. That's okay. He didn't say you have to get rid of it. I want. I love, there's a quote from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who said, the Buddha never said no self. (laughs) Which is just great, because it's a very conventional assumption that the Buddha taught about no self, which was not the teaching. He pointed at self, he said, start to be aware of self, and start to be aware of what's not self. And so he pointed at a paradox that's sitting here for all of us, which is the self that is here, whatever it is, Eugene or Robert or Jane or, you know, whoever you might be or think you are. And, and then there's something more that's not limited to the self-idea. And the self-idea is, again, totally fine. <clears throat> but it points to the paradox of where the Dharma is pointing us the paradox which is summarized a little bit in the T.S. Eliot line where he said teach us to care 
teach us to care and not to care. That's a great understanding of freedom. He just teaches to care and not to care. Both. <clears throat> and so, one of the things that happens as we start to practice is that reality, what happens, will, and the dukkha, that is a through line throughout the Buddhist teachings, right? The dukkha, the suffering, the disease, the uncomfortableness, the unsatisfactory nature of reality, which is a through line in the Buddha's teaching of freedom. And so it's not that he says everything is dukkha. He doesn't. But he says, pay attention, be aware of dukkha and the causes of dukkha and the forms it take takes and the freedom from dukkha and then the path that leads to that freedom which is the Four Noble Truths I just described. <clears throat> and so, good practice, at a certain point, sooner or later, will of course show us dukkha, which, anybody seen any dukkha in the just two days of being here? <laughs> right, just me and one other person. Thing. Oh, two, good, three, a little bit. But... Um, what it will confront us with at a certain point is one of the main impediments to what we seek, which is me, ourselves. We are one of the impediments to what we seek. We're, we live in a, well, I can say it a number of different ways, habitual reality about who and what we are, or a trance-like belief in our ego identity. And even notice, again, when I say be present or be aware of what happens during the talk, notice what it happens with certain ideas, especially about self. Because a lot of times people like this part of Buddhism the least. Because, you know, what is that crap? I'm me, and you know, who cares about that not-self stuff? Okay, you know, you don't have to care. I mean, I don't care if you don't care, but I mean, I care about the not-self, but <laughs> I'm not going to worry about it either way. So, and so this paradox of self and not-self is an important part of practice. And paradox, this is from Hamid Ali. He said, paradox means the mind doesn't get it. Paradox means the mind doesn't get it. Like it doesn't quite, you know, we can undo, we can, it makes a little bit of sense, but not total. You know, it's too, you know, it's like, oh, black and white are the same thing? Doesn't make sense, right? No, black's black, white's white, you know, or, or whatever the paradox might be. That's not a great paradox example. A better one is the one I said before, teach us to care and not to care. That's a great paradox of Dharma. And of course, that's part of what we're encouraging in our, hopefully in our instructions, in our talks, in our meetings with you. We're encouraging you to care and be very kind and compassionate and also to relax and release and let go even of what you care about. So we're not saying, to, you know, 
don't be very compassionate totally and love whatever you love but also see what happens as you don't hold on to anything don't grasp anything don't push away anything don't deny anything don't assume anything <clears throat> so if we start to move into this realm of ourself, it takes us into the realm of paradox. And paradox is a, a good realm for the ego to go into because the ego doesn't go into that realm very easily, doesn't like that realm. <clears throat> So, um, and paradox, here's a few words that I looked up about paradox. It's pointing at contradiction, or anomaly, or enigma, or conundrum, right? Those are are, um, uh, uh, associations with paradox. And of course, one of the main associations from the dictionary was mystery. And that is key to practice as far as I'm concerned. This is Eugene's, a quote from Eugene. Mystery is cool. Mystery is, I won't be quite so glib, mystery uh, starts to uh, point us at something about reality and there's more for us to learn. And there's more that we can learn. That's the other part. And I don't care how old you all are. If you're 25, you could still learn. Okay? (laughs) So here's a quote that points to some of the paradox of practice from Rio Khan, who is one of my great teachers. He said, Buddha is your mind. Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north, when you want to go south, how will you arrive? Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. That's a, that's a powerful quote from Ryokan, who is a great... Zen teacher and poet and beautiful, beautiful human being. What I love about Ryokan was he was a human being. His awakening didn't cut him off from his humanness and his humanness didn't cut him off from his beingness. He was a beautiful human being and I highly recommend his poetry or the stories about him. fantastically human, honest, down-to-earth, real person. So, the paradoxes of reality and of waking up I find very interesting and a very rich part of practice, fruitful part of practice, because it's part of what's sitting here. And I don't mean the waking up part, I mean the paradoxes. They're all, they're all right here. Who we are or what we think we are and then what we see, oh, we're not. Or what we've been and then we're different and then how we feel and then, oh, we feel different. It's all 
changes. It all doesn't stay the same at all, even though it's me. And, but what's the me part that doesn't change except the idea that it's me? Because everything else changes. Keep looking. And yet this unfamiliarity with ourselves is not so comfortable. We want to be familiar, and that's fine, and we are, you know, of course. But we're not letting the familiarity, familiar, I can't quite say it well, familiarity, um, obscure the unfamiliarity. What's unknown that's sitting here right now, right here, and I love John Cage. He was, he was an early hero of mine for many years. I was a musician when I was young, and I loved John's uh, music, or not music. You know, he did one whole piece that there was nothing. There was no sound for seven and a half minutes or seven minutes and 47 seconds, you know. Like, and then he had it on a record, right, with, with the time, so you knew how long it was. Beautiful. And he once said, he said, I am trying to be unfamiliar with what I am doing. I am trying to be unfamiliar with what I am doing. Now that's, an un, that's a dharmic understanding of how to engage with reality. And it doesn't mean, I want to be careful, it doesn't mean, oh, you have to forget what you know or not use what you know but we don't want to just be limited by what we know. And so I'm pointing a little bit as I talk at the paradox of knowing and not knowing and the dynamic tension that they bring. That I don't want to say dynamic tension, dynamic unfoldment that they bring that is positive. And we want to keep waking up to the paradox of our reality and our life. Here, here's a, here's a reflection you could do. Anybody remember when they were 20? Anybody? Just the three of us? Okay. So where is that? Where, where are your, your 20s now? Where are they? Pardon? They're still here. They're still here? Are they? In a way, okay. In photographs. Okay, in photographs. Okay, so, but you're not 20, are you? No, but I mean, I think there's a paradox there too. Okay, yes. I'm 10, I'm 20, I'm. You're, okay, you're 5, 10, 20, okay, that's okay, good. Great. How about all the things that happened when you were 20? Are they happening now? Not too many, okay. I'll leave you alone now. Um, but, but what I'm, so here, I'm pointing at something. So like, well, here, let me say it a different way. Anybody notice how real life was when we were in our 20s? Like there were a lot of real things happened? Where are all those real things that happened when we were in our 20s? They're not here. They're not here as far as I can tell. I can remember them. I have the impact of their impression on me and they're shaping me or forming me or me liking them or not, but they're not here, right? They're, but where are they? 
or you know, because it brings the question then, well, if they were so real, where'd they go? So we're just starting to look at reality instead of just in the usual habitual way and start to be a little curious about it or wondering about it. And you know, I mean, I could say the same thing about yesterday. Where's that? Where's yesterday? What is yesterday? Is it just an idea, a memory, a belief? And that's okay. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying, what is it? Because we take, we took it to be really real yesterday. Everybody noticed that? Like whatever was happening to you was totally real. You know, you had a good sitting, you had a bad sitting, you were happy, you were sad, it was pleasurable, you liked the talk, you didn't like the talk, whatever it was. Totally real, moment by moment by moment. And real, and I'm going to expand, it's usually things are all have been real, have been important to us, have been very alive for us, right? Everything was, but none of it's here right now in the same way it was here yesterday. And I'm going to tell you something, actually in a few minutes, this will not even be here in the way it was a few minutes ago, right? It's just gone. And so that starts to point us at reality and the nature of reality, the impermanent nature, the changing nature of reality, the unfixated nature of reality, And as I believe I said here, and if I didn't, I'll say it anyways, and of course, we are reality, right? There's not reality over there and reality not over here, right? Human beings are a manifestation or an expression of reality. This is from Ralph Walker. He said, enlightened space, enlightened space, this place of unconditional love cannot be achieved until and unless one is willing to be comfortable with paradox and confusion. Because it's part of the nature of reality. It's all just going, appearing and disappearing. I mean, and we'll talk more about the disappearing part in a couple of days. <clears throat> and so the encouragement in the groups that I like to give people about practice, and I gave today, which is also a little bit paradoxical, is, oh, be intimate with reality. See how close you can get to reality. See how unseparate from reality you can Allow your practice to be. So you're not practicing from over here to know about what's happening here. No, you're right here and you're knowing it in the direct experience. So what I'm suggesting is be intimate with the experiential reality that's sitting in your seat moment by moment by moment. Right now. Because because this is where the Dharma is happening and where the Dharma will be revealed is right where we are, right where each person is. And and it starts to reveal the potency of what the Buddha talked about when he pointed at, for example, impermanence, which we'll hear talk about more, given that aging is one of the uh, manifestations of 
impermanence, right? It's sitting right here. And also dissatisfaction or unhappiness or suffering, dukkha, is part of one of the manifestations of what's sitting here. And not-self is also one of the manifestations of what's sitting here. Something that is not just bound to your history, your idea, your belief, your memory, your, the way your psyche's formed. And that's great. You don't have to get rid of it. I'm not saying throw it out or get rid of it or, or that there's no self. But that's not the end of the story of what's sitting here. That's not the end of the reality of what's sitting here. And so to start to discover the power of impermanence and of dissatisfaction, of not-self, means to begin to unplug from habit, habitual reality, a little bit. It doesn't mean you can't plug back in. Totally you can plug back in. I want to assure you. If you unplug, you'll plug back in. No, no problem. But to start to see what happens to your consciousness as you unplug a little bit. If you unplug from time. Like everybody notice how time-oriented we are in general? Like we really believe in time? And, you know, time has its relative reality, but there's also no time. And same with space. Time and space, any great spiritual tradition at some point points to, oh yeah, there's no time and no space. We make that, we're making that up. And we do, we make up a lot of reality. So we want to unplug a little from time or from space or from our experience that we take to be reality. And to be a little more not totally plugged in or unplugged from the difficulties or the dukkha. We want to unplug from dukkha a little bit. We're not trying to throw it away or deny it or get rid of it. But we don't just want to be cathected to it. I like that word. It's a psychological word. Cathected is the energetic connection to something. Because sometimes we know something's not true, like, you know, that I'm a horrible person. We know, okay, that's not true. But we feel that way anyways. That's, we're still connected to the idea energetically. And so we start to unplug from the time, space, experience, difficulty from self. Not taking anything for granted, but seeing anew, moment by moment, what's here. And so, and I'll say a teeny little bit about dukkha and and not self, uh, anatta. So the one thing we've already been talking about dukkha, it's been talked about well. The one thing I like to say that I heard early in Buddhism and I always found helpful is, oh, there's two kinds of suffering. There's two kinds of suffering. Which do you want? No, no. I'm sorry, I shouldn't kid so much. I'm in a good mood, so I apologize for that. But um, two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to less suffering. And that's a great understanding of practice because we're not trying to get rid of suffering or deny suffering or throw it away or 
we actually we start to learn there's a different relationship to dukkha that comes alive and that relationship starts to liberate us from dukkha we don't do it we we just do the practice and then the dharma has its impact on us right so and this is here i'll add another eugene quote i'm quoting eugene cash now um because I never try to let go of anything, to be honest. I never try to let go of anything. I try to be aware of everything, and the letting go happens on its own. I don't, I don't do it, because if I, if I can let go of it, I'm not attached to it anyways, <laughs> really. But things I'm attached to, I can't let go of them. I can start to be aware of the energetic, to the, to the experiential, dynamic that is right here, alive right now, that I'm calling attached or holding on to or pushing away. And then something that, again, this is not Buddhist, but I would say something magical happens with awareness and, and, that's, and the wisdom of all the Dharma having its impact on a moment of waking up. <clears throat> So, and there's a, there's a nice quote, because we're so attached to habit. And see, that's, it's again, this is where I'm a little bit pointing us at the water we swim in, because that's harder to be aware of. It's easy to be aware of sight, sound, taste, touch, but habit, because the habit's how reality is, we think. Or our, what's familiar, it's hard for us to see, oh, we're attached to habit, to what's familiar, to what we know, and to me, to the meanness, because that's just a normal thing, right? Everybody says, oh, you're Eugene, right? They've been saying that to me as long as I've been alive. And, you know, that's a nice thing, but it may not be the whole understanding. This is from W.H. Auden, who said, we would rather be ruined than change. We would rather be ruined than change. We would rather die in our dread. We would rather be ruined than change. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. And I say this very respectfully because this is the dukkha we're all dealing with. We all get attached to whatever. And letting our illusions die is an ego uh, dystonic dynamic. The ego does not want to let our illusions die because the ego, the sense of self, is based on nothing. <laughs> I shouldn't. Now my mind says, oh, you shouldn't say it that way. But I will. Meaning it's based on history and life and family and all, you know, and, and, and psychology and all that stuff. And that's all great. But there's nothing there, right? It's just created. And that's fine. It's nothing bad about that. Nothing you have to feel bad or get rid of. But it's not the whole picture of what's sitting in your seat. 
and we're interested in the, the, the totality of what's sitting right here. Funny, I, I don't know how this got here, but it got here. It was in my stuff, and when I pulled up the talk tonight, which I just printed tonight, this came out with it, which is from um, uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, one of the great teachers of the last century. And it's called Nibbana for Everybody. Nirvana for Everybody. And it's a radical teaching about how, oh, Nirvana's available all the time right here. And sometime we'll, we'll do more on that. So, self, self. So here's one of the big attachments about self. And Suzuki Roshi, he said it so well. He said, any identity is a prison. Any identity is a prison. Now I'll say it a little, a Eugene way of saying it. Any identity can be a prison. Because it's okay to have an identity, but when we believe the identity, it can become a prison. If we think that's really what's here, and, that, and then it blocks what else might be here, or that we might discover about what's breathing, thinking, feeling, sensing, listening, hearing, seeing. What is that aliveness that predates Eugene? Right? So, for Buddhism, the teachings of self and not self become very important, even in their paradoxical nature. And uh, I was looking up paradox because I've never given this talk before. It kind of came a little bit yesterday and today. And um, and, uh, they they had some paradoxical statements. So I thought, oh, well, read that. See what what they are. And here's the one I like the best. I, I am nobody. That's, that was a, that's a paradoxical statement. I am nobody. And it's a beautiful understanding of how we relate to I. We think even if we're nobody, we're somebody. We're, nobody, we're nothing nobody, somebody. But, but we, we really are, it's so usual, the me, I, mine, Right? So I, I want to just point you to a couple things you can play with. This is play with time, okay? Play with. Because we're also talking a lot about awareness, right? Okay? And I'm loving that word these days uh, and, the, and the phenomena of awareness, right? Is everybody aware right now? Let me just see. Anybody not aware? Right? Okay. So here. This is, I'm quoting Eugene Cash again. Awareness, oh no, not yet, I'm not going to quote him yet, I'll quote him in a minute. So we've been doing this simple practice of being aware, which is not something you can do, right? You, you can't be aware. Or, or here's, how, here's the other way to play with it. So right now, stop being aware. I'm serious. You're going to have to go to bed early if you don't stop being aware. (laughs) Can anybody stop being aware? So who's doing that? 
and yet our whole reality is informed by awareness. What we think, what we feel, what we sense, what we learn, what we like, what we're aware of all that stuff. And we never pay attention to the awareness itself, which you can do right now, which is aware of all kinds of things and aware of your ideas about whatever you're aware of or your feelings about whatever you're aware of. It's happening, and so we're starting to be aware of that. And if the awareness goes away and you know it, come and talk to one of us because that maybe that can happen too. But mostly we're aware. So, and here's the piece really that I want to quote Eugene Cash. Because we're practicing with our experience moment by moment by moment and our, and our dukkha. Check this out. See if Eugene Cash is accurate with this or not. He says, awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. Awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. And, you know, that's just something, that's just a little play experiment of practice. Because every year, anyhow, I'm I'm not going to try to convince you. I I want you to actually practice and see, see for yourself. And I'll be happy if, if I'm wrong, I'm happy to hear that, of course. You know, I'm, I'm always learning as part of my practice. And it's one of the things I loved about sitting with Saida Utejaniya. Because he, un, he said, oh, practice is about understanding. That's why we practice, so we can understand reality. And you don't hear it put that way so much by... I, I haven't heard it put that way too much. <clears throat> and so when we point to the awareness, we're pointing to part of the not-self part of what's here. Because it's here, the awareness is here. We, we're, we know what we're aware of. But we don't have to do the awareness. So there's a nice quote from Eckhart Tolle who said, there is something within you that remains unaffected by the transient, meaning changing, right? There is something within you that remains unaffected by the transient circumstances that make up your life situation. There is something within you that remains unaffected by the transient circumstances that make up your life situation. And only through surrender, his word, Only through surrender do you have access to it. It is your very being, which exists eternally in the timeless realm of the present. And that's the way Eckhart Tolle understands and talks about the selfless reality. That's right here. Wow, I have... Oh no, I don't have that much more. I have a little bit more, teeny bit. Are we okay if I go a little longer? Thank you. And thank you for the people who wish I wasn't going a little longer, but don't say that. <laughs> appreciate that. So part of the paradox we've been talking about and I've been pointing at a little bit is 
the simplicity of reality or the simplicity complexity of reality but really I'm pointing at the simplicity because that is what I've seen for myself and other people is the hardest to begin to land in the simpleness of a moment sight, sound, taste, touch thought, feeling that's all that's happening and then there's all we make of it and that's fine but but the simplicity of the phenomenological moment of experience, of aliveness. And that simplicity is highly, highly regarded in Buddhism. And one of my favorite Buddhist stories is about Bahia. And Bahia was is a whole story, sutta, sutta about Bahia called, he's called Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So you get an immediate picture of the kind of gear that he wears. He's wearing bark cloth. And um, he seeks out the Buddha. And it's a beautiful story, just the whole story. It's worth reading because he seeks him out and he, he can't find him. And then he goes and then he still can't find him. And he finally, he gets him telling you a little of the story that I like. He, he finds the Buddha right before the Buddha's supposed to go for alms rounds. Right? It's the right time to go. And he finds the Buddha and he says, Okay, please give me the teachings, Buddha. And the Buddha said, Well, it's time for alms rounds. And Bahia's is, you know, fierce. He cares about what's important. He says, Well, please, please tell me. I don't know what's going to happen, you know. I, please tell me. And the Buddha said, you know, but it's alms round. I have, I have to go for lunch, is really what the Buddha's saying. And... Um, <laughs> And Bapi, he is very persistent. He says, please tell me, even if it's brief. And so the Buddha does. And that's a little bit of a famous uh, archetype in Buddhism, three times. And if the Buddha says yes the third time, that's a good thing, right? And so he says, he says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the scene will be merely what is seen. And you can play with it right now. In the scene will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. This is the way you should train yourself, Bahia. So he gives them this teaching of total phenomenological simplicity, right? Being aware of the simple phenomena of seeing, of hearing, of feeling, of thinking, right? And then he says, when Bahia, in the seen is just the seen, in the heard is just the heard, in the sensed is just the sensed, in the cognized is just the cognized, then Bahia, you will not be with that. When Bahia, you are not with that, then Bahia, you will not be in that. When, Bahia, you are not in that, then, Bahia, you will be neither here nor there nor in between the two. Just that is the end of suffering. That's a, that's a, that's a beautiful teaching from the Buddha, pointing to the simplicity of the human experience and starting to relax into the total simplicity where, uh, you know, I, can, I just say other stuff, but, but 
the sense of self lets go. And what's here is free. So let's sit together for a minute, please.